Hello and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, where we talk about fiction and storytelling in all its forms. From the weird to the fantastic, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, thrillers, mysteries, anything you can ask for, we have it. I'm Chris Alvarez and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Max Berry, author of Providence, which will be published by G.P. Putnam's Sons. Actually, it's been published on sale March 31st, 2020, so just a couple days ago. Uh, thank you for speaking with me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So first, um, obviously, you, you have a lot of ideas percolating in your head all the time. Um, how did this the idea for this novel rise up from the rest and, and get written? Yeah, well, that is a really accurate description of how it actually works for me because starting a new book is very much uh, just me writing down any sort of interesting thing that comes into my head, uh, any idea, and just exploring it through a few scenes and then reworking and reworking and reworking until it either turns into something useful or it dies and um, I never look at it again. Hmm. So with Providence, um, I remember the very first idea um, for this um, was the idea of um, a book where there would be four people in some sort of battleship in, engaged in some sort of conflict. Mm -hmm. uh, but because it was the future, there would be no role for them. The ship itself would be so advanced that it would take care of everything and the crew uh, wouldn't really have uh, a whole lot to do. And then at some point, uh, this amazing technology which they had relied upon, um, something would begin to go wrong with it and they would have to face a new scenario where they were actually required to do the kind of job that they had been uh, imagining and dreaming of and kind of hoping for in a way uh, the whole time they were on board. So that was the really basic idea for it. Um, it came out of my love of classic sci-fi, especially these um, sort of really golden age sci-fi novels that I read a lot of when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. uh, I loved um, uh, Larry Niven novels, uh, Philip K. Dick, uh, especially his short stories where there would be this you know, they would be eight pages long, but you would be thrown into some sort of interstellar conflict with uh, humans uh, fighting with other humans. Also, there would be an alien threat. And um, I just, you know, devoured so much of that stuff uh, as a kid that in the back of my head, I'd always wanted to go back and, and revisit that kind of universe and tell a story that would be, in a way, a kind of very old school sci-fi story of um a human human a human response to an alien first contact where the aliens turned out to be tremendously hostile mm -hmm. but it would also be new in some sense um because i i do tend to write different books i, I tend to um have an idea for something and and just pursue it because i find it interesting so i i found a way into this book where okay there would be these four people who were on this ship for different reasons um the ship was be representing humanity's best hope um the war that they were fighting would have larger questions around it which um we could explore and and so yeah that was that was it for me i i wrote um in a very chaotic style for a while until i actually managed to find a way in which the story started to feel right and and then i could write it with more confidence and explore more about it mm -hmm. but the, it began with that initial idea um and it was it was kind of based on the thought that wars of the future have will have less and less to do with wars of the past mm -hmm. and that first of all we are becoming uh, we are valuing human life 
much more highly than we used to. We, we would never tolerate another war where we're just throwing um, millions of human lives uh, into trenches mm-hmm. uh, in the way that happened in World War One, And we are using technology to protect us from that. We are using drones. We are using computer-guided ordnance and, and all of this stuff that doesn't require risking human life. So the the conflicts of the future, I thought, will be very much like that. The, the loss of any human life would be tragic in a future war. Um, we would be using technology which is far superior to what humans can do in a lot of cases. We certainly won't be having humans aiming guns and, and shooting guns and possibly even making decisions about how to respond to the enemy. Mm-hmm. So uh, I wanted to like take that old school concept uh, and place it in uh, a more modern context. Yeah, definitely mentioning the the old school classics. Uh, when I started reading the book, which I, I've enjoyed a lot so far, and um, I'm resisting reading it all the way through because I like to um, just take my time and, and just uh, think about the bits that I read um, as I go through them. But as I started reading, I thought of uh, Joe Haldeman's The Forever War um, in that yes. you have... Uh, you're really looking at how uh, this situation is affecting the characters, and you do have this this magnificent tech, sci-fi tech in the background, so to speak, uh, in the foreground also, but but more in the background, and the characters take center stage. Um, so yeah, I was definitely feeling that and, and like that part a lot. With with the various scientific ideas and social ideas you do explore in the novel that you've mentioned, um, how much of a plan did you have? on what to discuss and how much grew out as you were writing, as you were exploring this world you constructed. Yeah, I think for any author, we have our own little set of um, things that we find interesting. So for me, I no matter what story I'm writing, whether it is a science fiction story that involves aliens and spaceships or whether it's a corporate workplace satire or whatever it is, the, the interesting part for me is how the people are are interacting with each other, who they are, um, the relationships between the people and how those relationships are threatened, how they persuade one character to do something that they might not otherwise do, uh, and especially how they change. Because the change, any book, any story, I feel like change is the key component of it, that uh, no matter what we're talking about, um, we're really looking at how something might change or how how it is threatened by change. So I, um, I, I find just how people interact with, with each other to be a core part of, of any book I'm writing. And uh, with Providence, which is, you know, it is set in the future. So there is a bunch of new technology. Uh, there is a mysterious enemy that um, we want to find out more about. But that those things are not upfront for me. Um, upfront is the people and this, and yeah, the, the choices they're making. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, I like, I enjoy reading about technology. Um, I like when I read sci-fi myself, I really enjoy it when an author has sketched out some really, uh, consistent and, uh, involved, complicated, um, technology or, or culture or whatever. But, but for this story, for me, it was I wasn't really doing that. I, I was looking more at the um, the more human side of it. Um, so I am interested in getting into a particular theme, um, and in this case, it's this theme of of conflict and and what the uh, well, basically, I like to drill down into that theme in into a deeper way. And so I I was curious about how the situation that their characters find themselves in 
is similar to what we're all doing in our everyday lives without possibly even mm-hmm. realizing it. And by that, I mean, um, I, I, I read this book when I was much, much younger um, called Genome by the science writer Matt Ridley. Mm-hmm. And it talked about how the the genes that are, are in our own genetic code have basically been at war with each other for uh, as long as they've existed. Mm-hmm. And they're each trying to colonize different parts of our chromosome and, and growing larger and in some uh, over time or possibly wiping out another gene. And so it's this conflict that we are completely unaware of and that has absolutely nothing to do with us um, as people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't influence my decisions, I don't think, um, on as I go about my life. But it's also the recipe that just determines who I am. I was grown from this genetic code. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, in a way, I am this walking battleship for a bunch of genes that are fighting mm-hmm. a war that I'm not really aware of. Yeah. And that's, that's the direct analogy for the ship in this book, where there are these humans on board, and they have given the warship a particular set of directions but they're not able to communicate directly with the ship they don't really know what the ship is thinking um, because they're just completely different types of uh, life uh, to, to use that word mm-hmm. and so they they have their own warship uh, and they have their own relationship with it um, but that was that was an interesting concept for me I, I really wanted to get into this idea that we are in a universe that is filled with conflict and there is conflict between humans there is conflict between different species on our planet there is conflict at, at every level of life mm. and the it's quite a like a cold and unforgiving universe in that sense there's we have this beautiful warm bubble on earth where we uh, we live and we form relationships and we craft human meaning and purpose and art but beyond all that uh, it's you know really brutal Mm-hmm. So uh, I've, I wanted to have that uh, unfold, unfold in the book where it's it's a very human story, um, but it's unfolding against this um, very brutal, uncaring backdrop of a universe that is um, filled with conflict all the time. Hmm. Now, as a sort of a little tantalizing teaser for listeners and, and people who read the book, um, you just said something. I'm not going to say what, but you just said something about what you read, sort of what you used um, that that makes me think a little more about what I've been reading. And I'm not going to say specifically or at all, but, right. but I'm going to yeah, say, you yeah. just told me. I know me what you're referring to there. And yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to, I almost caught myself as I said it, but yeah, it's, um, there is a big question for, for the reader about the nature of what's beyond the crew uh, and the nature of, of the enemy and the nature of the ship, uh, which seems quite simple at first when the book begins, because it is this, this old school concept of, humans on board a warship um the warship is doing a good job the enemy is um kind of mindless they're, they're they don't seem to to think a great deal they just seem to be more like a force of nature and um there is i don't think there's any great twists in in that but there is a a deepening exploration of what those concepts really mean yeah it's uh and also um you mentioned before that you know there's this question of um the purpose of the humans and uh, you do raise that question in the book, and then you answer it. And again, I'm not going to be specific, but you answer it, and it, it's really fascinating. Um, sort of uh, some of the concepts you explore with that. Um, I won't say it if you want to mention um, uh, anything like that. That's up to you. But uh, again, another really interesting concept for readers um, who want to take a look at this book. 
Um, and I would suggest, actually, I've been promoting this book to other people on social media and stuff because it's, it's really interesting. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah. It's kind of tough to talk about because yeah, the book does develop obviously over the, over the journey. And there are some concepts that become more prominent later in the book that, um, that yeah, are really the reason that that got me into this story and that I wanted to tell this story. But, uh, for, for the reasons of spoilers, uh, obviously I, I can't talk about them yeah. before people have read it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you mentioned some of the sci-fi classics that uh, inspired this story. What other uh, are there other books or media um, that inspire you in general um, in in any sort of way you approach your writing or the concepts you want to explore? Uh, for Providence, uh, I think it's probably really relevant that uh, I was born in 1973. So um, Star Wars came out in 1977, and I was part of that star wars generation um which you know was tremendously influential i i had so many star wars figurines as a kid and would just make up stories involving all the figurines um with my friends so yeah that was um that was a great time to be a kid and a sci-fi fan um because there were there were a battle of star galactica on tv and there was um i was probably a little bit young for blake seven but it was uh there was doctor who there was a lot of tv and and film about this the amazing possibilities of a science fiction world and mm-hmm. um part of that was the technology and part of that was the culture that like the 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 culture of the other races we we might meet out there if we met alien life or, what must it be like? Mm-hmm. Uh, because one of the things that um, the thing that, the thing that's interesting is because all of these shows, of course, whenever we do have aliens in them, whether it's Star Trek or Star Wars or whatever, um, they are very very human like um, in mm-hmm. um, in in relative terms. So it's quite possible that when we meet alien life uh, in real life, um, if that ever does happen, Mm. it will turn out to be a kind of life where we're not even sure if it's life because it's so different to what we consider to be life. Mm -hmm. It's um, it doesn't really meet the same parameters. Mm -hmm. So uh, when we imagine that we tend to do the human thing and to project our own feelings um, and emotions and personality traits onto it. Mm-hmm. In the same way that we do with uh, with animals, with um, with inanimate objects, we we tend to ascribe human feelings to things because that's that's all we can do. Mm-hmm. And in uh, yeah, I suspect that if there is an alien life, it may be completely unknowable, and it will think in a way that we just find well, alien um, is probably the right word for it because it doesn't it doesn't map with the same way that we think and that we feel. Yeah. So it's um yeah, it's a uh, it's a really interesting idea to how we're gonna deal with that uh, we're probably not very well equipped to deal with that we're probably not very well equipped to deal with ai as it develops over the the next couple of decades because ai is going to be tremendously useful to humanity and it's going to do amazing things but it also has the ability to run away from us quite quickly um and in ways we don't think about and this is something that that i found as a pro as a hobbyist programmer where um i i really love computers i i program as a hobby it's a great sort of right brain activity for me to when i've been messing around with fiction for so long that i can't do it anymore to do something different hmm. but what you learn is that when you program a computer it works like you you start off and you tell the computer what you want it to do and then the computer does something different and, hmm. and doesn't work like you expect and you go and look at why and you discover actually it did do what you told it to it's just that you were not really 
fully aware of all the assumptions you were making when you gave it those instructions. And so it did the thing that you asked it to do 10 million times instead of two times like you thought any reasonable person would do. <laughs> and so it's, um, it's, yeah, it's this kind of alien mind where it's, it doesn't share much with our own sense of, of, of how we would imagine a human would do in that situation at all. Mm -hmm. But it is, um, it is going to become something that is um, really a part of our world in the future. Um, I remember thinking not too long ago that as AI developed, probably one of the last areas it would ever go into would be something creative like writing, like my own area. Hmm. And yet already there are AIs who can <laughs> do a, um, you know, probably a pretty bad job, but still they can do a passable job of writing fiction mm -hmm. um, and they can do a good job of writing nonfiction where they can go out and synthesize a bunch of online articles about some topic and they can pull together um, a perfectly competent article about a, a nonfiction topic. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, here we are already. Um, I think that it's going to be really interesting what happens in the future. And the trap for us um, as the human race is to see it for what it is and not try to project our own um, human personality traits onto it. Yeah. Let me uh, let me turn towards to the process of writing. And you can still touch on the book, obviously. But um, is there anything out of the ordinary that you do? Or that you did to complete this work that you, that might be different from what other writers might do. Uh, I think I probably do more of a chaotic process at the start of writing the book, where I I will tend to write a whole bunch of different scenes, and it might be a dozen different scenes or different ideas, and I'll have very little idea of how they might connect to each other or or what they're even about. But what I'm doing really is just starting with something that I find interesting, some scenario, and then just writing out a scene and, and looking for what works in it. Mm -hmm. And what works might be a line of dialogue. It might be that sort of suggests a particular attitude or a particular relationship or something. But And I can't really articulate what it is, but it's just, you know, I'll see something that appeals to me for some reason. Mm -hmm. So I have this really messy, messy process of getting started. Uh, it's probably the reason it's been so long since Lexicon, my previous novel, because I, I messed around with so many different ideas, um, and some of those ideas blew out to become almost novel length before I realized <laughs> that, um, you know, that this still wasn't really what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was working on multiple of these at, at a time, so I would flip back and forth, which is a really fast way to accomplish or to finish zero books. Um <laughs> But yeah, so what I I usually start a book like that. Um, I I find that the first getting to the book to the point where I'm really happy with a first chapter and I'm like, okay, that will be the first chapter in the actual book, can take maybe seventy percent of my time, and then when I've got that right, and then everything else becomes much easier. Mm -hmm. um, I have done more planning with Providence than I've probably done for any book previously so once i'd gotten the story to a particular point i was able to stop and plan out the story um from that point forward and also how i wanted to restructure what i already had um, whereas in the past my my process has been more organic all the way through where i would just um write a page at a time with very little idea of where it was going mm -hmm. and that's a really good way to stay true to the story and stay true to your characters 
but it's also almost a guarantee that you get to the end of your first draft and and you read it back and weep because there's mm-hmm. just so much work to try to put some decent structure in there and the ideas you had in chapter 12 that you thought were going to go somewhere but they turned out actually not to um it's yeah it's a job so i found that with providence once i had gotten the story to the point where i was happy with it uh, i thought okay this is this is a book here i could um i could plan it out and i could have an ending in mind from quite early in the process which i haven't really been able to do before Hmm. and that was yeah that was really satisfying so yeah it's really chaotic um i tend to my writing process from a sort of a nuts and bolts point of view point of view is that i always try to put myself in a a good mood where i'm excited about writing um i never try to force myself to write um because i find that I can write a lot of words like that, but they will be bad words that I'll need to delete later. Hmm. So it's always better to, for me to not force myself to write, but rather than rather to just put myself in a good frame of mind where I, I'm writing what I want to. This is a job where sometimes people think that I must have a lot of self-discipline to go and write every day and, and no one's watching over my shoulder to see if I'm actually writing words. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I found that self-discipline is not all that helpful. And that, like probably I suspect most things, that when you're working on something that you honestly love and that you're just genuinely motivated by the curiosity to explore that idea and and to build it further and and to do it because you want to, then that's when it it all works. And it actually comes out much better than it could have if you had forced it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, my process is pretty um, unstructured, I guess, from a day-to-day point of view. But um, writing novels is what I love to do the most. I found that... Even when uh, when I had a real job, that the best part of each day was when I could sneak away and mm-hmm. write a couple of hundred words of my novel and build this thing that was going to be there forever, um, regardless of whether anyone actually read it. Mm-hmm. Just the fact that I was building it, I, I've always found that really satisfying from a, a creative and emotional point of view. It feels like the best part of my day is when I've actually built some some good part of a book. So, yeah, for me, yeah, it's got to be about following the joy and writing, even just on a day-to-day level. If I'm writing something and I'm enjoying what I'm doing, then I will do that. I will very rarely, like, force myself to go in a different direction to to just what feels right for whatever reason. So you mentioned the programming and this other previous job. Um, what, what other non-writing work have you done that's influenced how or what you write? Yeah, so I, um, as I mentioned, I have been messing around with computers since I was um, very young, and it's um, I found that I, I sort of ended up in this world where that's actually really helpful because when I started, only the geeks were working with computers, right? It was just um, the computers were not really um, a common part of the world, right. um, and now if you actually can program computers, you can make websites and you can. Um, do a lot of things that are really important for someone who is trying to work uh, as a sole trader. So I, I do build websites. Um, I do uh, like I'm into Australian rules football. So I, I um, have a website um, for Australian rules football. This is a hobby. Um, I've created a couple of online games. Um, the most popular of which is called nation states. And it, um, it basically happened because my first novel syrup was, um, I went into that with a very naive point of view where I kind of assumed that the next thing that happened after you got your book published was that you became a bestseller. (laughs) And I discovered that 
actually, in reality, nobody buys books by authors they've never heard of. And that's what happened with Syrup. Like, nobody had heard of it. Um, it does seem to be that people who have read it have really enjoyed it, but nobody's heard of it. Mm. So with Jennifer Government, my second novel, I was resolved to make sure that I would do something to at least make people aware that this book existed. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they could make up their own minds about whether they wanted to buy it, but I would put it in front of people somehow. So I had the idea of creating this game where you could make up your own nation, like a virtual country, mm-hmm. and you would be faced with a series of dilemmas about what sort of laws you wanted to pass in that country, whether you wanted to make it into uh, like the world in Jennifer Government, which is ultra-capitalist, uh, rah-rah free market, or if you wanted to make it into uh, a socialist totalitarian state or, or whatever you wanted to do, mm-hmm. you would be able to do it. Um, and this turned out to be really popular. Um, it was, it's probably made, made, I'm better known for that game uh, among high school students and political science majors than my books, I'm sure. Huh. And it, um, it was because basically I had been messing around with computers since I was young. And so I knew barely enough to be able to do that. Um, and so with Providence as well, I, I wanted to make something similar. So I made up a little, um, a game that you can play that um, where you're on board a Providence ship and you're interacting with the other characters. So um, anyone who's interested in checking that out can go to providence.training mm-hmm. and play that little game. gives you a little taster. Uh, so, yeah, that's, um, that's something that I find, you know, it's, it works for me as it, help, it helps to promote the books, but it's also something that I just find enjoyable. I like building things no matter what they are and building things with computers um, is yeah, just a fun part of my day. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> um, what was there? Were there parts of uh, Providence um, that you ended up having to take out that maybe the editors um, prompted some changes, or or were you free to do what you wanted? I yeah, there is a ton. Every every book I write has so much that doesn't make the final book. With Providence, for sure, I had. Um, I'm trying to think how much I can say about this without spoiling, but I had tremendous um, amounts of... Like, the first version of this book uh, was written from the point of view of Gilly, uh, who's one of the four main characters. Hmm. And it was like first person, and it was all... The whole thing was a, was about his journey. And the story was quite different, and Gilly ended up going to uh, a, a salamander, which is the aliens, a salamander world, and... Uh, the, the aliens were quite different at this point in the book and and exploring more about that. So I, I had all of this stuff and exploring the other cultures, which was kind of, I think, a throwback to um, these the books, the Tripod Trilogy by, um, I think it's John Christopher, uh, just an amazing series of books um, that I read as a kid and are about these tripods that um, take over and uh, in the third book this this character gets taken back to the alien dome and gets to interact with this alien culture so it was probably inspired by that sort of idea mm-hmm. um and that didn't really make it into the final book but yeah the it's it's a real process of evolution for me writing a novel and figuring out um yeah where, where the real story is and what's what's the journey that we're actually going to be following here mm-hmm. so i have um probably for Providence, maybe like 50,000 words of, of stuff that didn't make it into the book. And mm-hmm. that's, that's pretty typical or even a bit less than, than typical for me of, of what I have in my notes file that doesn't make it into the final book. The editing process was pretty 
pretty simple this time around. Um, I didn't change it a great deal. I mean, I guess that's kind of the fact that um, when I um, give a book to an editor, if they want to publish the book, then they usually feel like it's, you know, it's pretty close. I don't have to do a whole lot of work. It's more actually the other way around where I'm often tempted to rip up the floorboards and to rewrite a book to death. And I will, hmm. I will keep rewriting books until somebody stops me. <laughs> so it's with the editor is, is often not forcing me to, to rewrite stuff so much as, um, yeah, restraining me from doing so. <laughs> so, uh, let me ask perhaps a couple whimsical questions. Um, one, if the book had a soundtrack to it, um, wh what do you think, uh, that soundtrack would be, or do you think that, do you have like a musical idea with it? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually have two parts of this because a friend just sent me this um, song. It's a Daft Punk song, um, and it's called—I've forgotten its name now—but it was—it's called First Contact, or it's something like very alien themed, and it um, was really appropriate. But what I was listening to a lot of when I was writing Providence was um, orchestral dubstep or orchestral electronica, where it's. Mm. It's got uh, a lot of strings and, and orchestra kind of music in it, but it's also uh, sort of taken to an electronic place by whoever's been mixing it up. So it's got this big um, brassy feel to it, but it's also like I, I listen to a lot of electronic music as well, but I, especially stuff with a really strong deep beat. And, and I find that that's good writing music for me because there's no, there are no lyrics to it. There's no vocals. So, I'm not distracted by someone shouting words in my ear, but I am put into a good mind space by just the swelling of that sort of music. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I listened to a lot of that. Um, I listened to – my daughter was in this choir for a while, and I went to a performance that they did where – it was a really good little choir, just 12 of them. The kids did a, a great job, and she was singing um, – was it Jean – Jean Teller Moulin, no, I've forgotten the actual name of it, mm -hmm. um, but something about I tilt at windmills, and it was a, an arrangement where it was uh, it was high at the same time as it was, it was the low power was going on, and it just got me in mind of these different levels um, all moving together, uh, and that was a theme that I felt really attached to in the story, where there was something happening at the very human level and the individual level, but there were also bigger wheels turning in the background uh, that were um, all connected. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was just a great place for me to be. Yeah. I can, I can, when you describe it, I can hear that. I can almost hear the ship. It almost sounds like the, the, the soul of the ship, the, the stuff you were describing, you know, big and, and uh, powerful, but also it had the, you know, the intricate um, electronics and stuff. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and also the like the the bigger question of, so they're in, involved in a war, but a war is so big that you can never really see all of it at once. You only see the part that these particular people are exposed to. Mm -hmm. So the um, yeah, it was it was a, I like the idea that there was this grand movement happening in the background, and also a kind of universal movement happening where we are all individuals who are connected by. Our, our part in this wider conflict that is just the nature of life that that all life involves conflict and even though we're only aware of our own little piece of it and we only really care about the part that affects us as individuals and that we can ascribe meaning and purpose to and human relationships to mm -hmm. we are also joined by this this um this shared role uh in in the universal movement 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm speaking with Max Berry, author of the new science fiction novel Providence. You can find him at maxberry.com. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, please rate it on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. Please also like, comment, and follow on my website, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. You can also go to YouTube under Chris Alvarez, on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi, and on Twitter and Facebook at Chris Alvarez FCN. If you like military history, please check out my podcast, Military History Inside Out, also at warscholar.org. If you like outer space exploration and commercialization, please check out my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Now back to the podcast. And the other whimsical question, when you were young, was there any power, technology, or a fiction setting you yearned either for or to be a part of? Yeah, the, the big one was, okay, so I had a Commodore 64, which was a, a little home computer, mm -hmm. and there was a game for it called Elite, um, which has actually been released in a new version for different uh, machines now. But back then you had to fly this uh, little ship, which was, uh, you know, the graphics were just laughable, of course, because it was the uh, probably late 70s or early 80s. Mm -hmm. And you had to fly this ship, and the great thing about it was that it implied there was a really big universe full of other cultures. Mm -hmm. And so you would buy supplies at one ship and you would fly somewhere else and it would be that different outpost would be run by these different humans, probably very Star Trek-y in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, and then you would meet all these other ships and you wouldn't really know what they were doing. They were just going from one place to another. Mm -hmm. And uh, my best friend Freddie and I used to just dream that one night this – this Cobra Mark III spaceship would land in our backyard and then we would get to go into it and fly off to that sort of world. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that that's the sort of thing that I was uh, dreaming of back then. Yeah, I played Elite. That was a pretty mesmerizing game. Uh, it was amazing, wasn't it? Yeah, it, like there wasn't a lot to it, but it implied so much. Well, it, it really let your imagination go wild. It wasn't. It didn't put you on a specific path. You were just kind of in charge of your own gaming life, so to speak. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I haven't thought about that game in a little bit. All right. Um, I know that you don't like talking about your next writing project. I saw that in the, the publicist paper, but I'll ask this. Are, so with your current writing, are you and your muse getting along as you pursue your current project? Um, yeah, that's a very, very delicate way of, of asking that. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, yeah, look, the, the thing is, I do always want to talk about what I'm writing on, but I've got such a terrible track record because what happens is I always try to delude myself into thinking that whatever I'm working on is the greatest piece of literature that has ever graced the earth. Mm -hmm. Because I find that unless I'm in that headspace, then I'm not as committed to the book as I need to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and if I believe that this is the greatest thing ever, then you know, I can, I really let myself fall in love with it and become infatuated with the draft. And then I can, um, just dive into it with the confidence that you need to write a novel because you do need just ridiculous amounts of confidence to write a novel. You need to believe that this thing that you're working on for week after week, month after month, possibly year after year is going to be appreciated by other people at some point in the future. And they're going to believe what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, it's, it's not something that you can sustain with a rational mindset. You do need to have a good, healthy dose of delusion in there. Mm -hmm. So I find that occasionally I'll get to the end of a first draft and I will be flush with that 
delusion and I will be and I'll immediately start like talking about it and then whenever I've done that it has just turned out to be the worst decision because I then start to show the book to other people and I realize that once the scales of love you know fall from my eyes maybe it's actually not the greatest thing ever after <laughs> after all and maybe in fact it shouldn't even be published so mm -hmm. that has happened a couple of times um, this time around right now I have finished the first draft of what I think will be my next book um, my editor has I think accepted it so I think it's going to be published but even so I just I just have such a terrible track record here I'm going to not mention anything more about it okay. um, except to say that it's um, it's a different kind of story I always like to to go somewhere different I I kind of um, what happens after I finish that first draft and I start to rewrite it is I try to adopt a more rational mindset. So I fall out of love with the draft. I I try to attack it pretty objectively. And then by the time the book is actually published, uh, I've rewritten it and reread it so many times that I'm heartily sick of it. So mm. I always feel the need to go do something different when I go on to the next book. Um, so with uh, with the one after Providence, uh, I'm really hoping, first of all, that it's going to be soon. It should be 2021, I hope, not a big gap like has happened between Lexicon and Providence. Mm. But uh, yeah, it's um, it's again, it's it's not a it's not a sci-fi story in the sense of spaceships and aliens, but it is science fiction in that it's um, it deals with the modern world, but slightly tilted. Um, there's a major difference to it, uh, and which puts people in interesting situations so yeah I, I hope that will be next when you write do you feel more, more motivated by things within your personal life or things that are affecting society you know which which the the balance there or maybe there's not any difference for you yeah that's a good question i probably the second one i i do always try to relate what's happening to the people in the story to wider questions of what's happening in society and and to the world around us or in the case of providence just to, to who we are so yeah it just feels like um a story like i got off i started off writing satires so they were very much concerned with reflecting some part of society and as i've moved away from satire and, and gotten more into stories that just are themselves and and not trying to satirize something else I have dropped that to a degree, but it's still yeah important to me to to tell a slightly universal story in that it has you know hopefully when you finish reading one of my books you feel like it's been a good story in its own right, but it also leaves you with something to think about about the the way that you might look at some aspect of, of your own life or the wider world. Mm -hmm. So is this the point where uh, future English historians say that Max Berry entered his serious stage? Is uh you know, less whimsical. <laughs> yeah, my serious state. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, I haven't done a satire for a few books. I think okay. probably uh, Company was the last satire I've done, uh, and that was about 2007, I think. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's been a while. Um, I am glad I moved away from that because the world became so ridiculous since then that, you know, the challenge for satire and the fun part of satire was always taking some thing that was present in the real world and then stretching it until it became really ridiculous and yet it was still so connected to the the ordinary thing that you could see it was a logical development mm -hmm. and um the, the the world has become so crazy and and so stretched uh, in reality that i don't know what you do if you're a satirist today mm -hmm. because 
whatever far-fetched scenario you can come up with seems at once not ridiculous enough and also um, implausible. It's like it, you can't. You, there's, there's no more space to to go beyond what's currently happening uh, and make it uh, more so. And um, so, yeah, I I don't think there's a, it's a great time for satire either. Um, you know, we're in the middle of a global pandemic right now, which uh, has transformed the world into a very science fictiony kind of place. Uh, it's starting to feel a little bit post-apocalyptic already. Mm-hmm. So it's um, yeah, it's probably a good time for stories that are less uh satiric uh, and more just uh, will take you somewhere else i think yeah this current situation makes me wonder how uh you know these late shows with comedians and stuff can even deal with it because yeah we're sort of past humor in a sense um not necessarily well, i do but... think that humor is you know, the black comedy is something that i've always enjoyed uh and humor i try to put in all of my books Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think we can still like humor is really important. Even even in tragedy, humor is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more just the, the satire that is is slightly uh, less tenable, uh, at least for me. Other people will do it well. But but for me, it's it's not an area that I really want to explore as much as I used to. Mm-hmm. So where can people find you online? You mentioned the one uh, the game site. I think you said Providence uh, dot um, training. Yes, that's right. And I'm at maxbarry.com and uh, also on Twitter and Facebook. But those links are basically on my site. So, yeah, I um, I have a website that's been going since, boy, since probably the late 90s. Um, it was um, a hive of activity probably 10 years ago when I was blogging regularly. And since then, blogs have become less of a thing and people like just post on Facebook now and Twitter. So mm-hmm. I don't blog quite as much as I used to, um, but still I'm there. I spent um, a ton of time recently redeveloping it because the problem when you've got a website that was first created in 1998 and have been reworking ever since is that the code is just at an abomination. It's so <laughs> difficult to work on now. I should really just throw the whole thing out and start again at some point, but hmm. I have not. Uh, it is still the same thing creaking along. Uh, so it's. I did rework it so that you can look at it on a phone and it actually looks um, kind of okay now instead of hmm. as it was before, not. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's where you can find me. All right, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Uh, no, I think we covered it really well. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, thank you very much for speaking with me. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, please subscribe. Please also rate Full Contact Nerd and review it if you can. I have many more options to nerd out on sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. You can check out my website, chrisalvarez.com. That's Chris without an H. I have 20 mini-blogs on the site covering sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, writing, mysteries, folklore, mythology, and many more topics. You can find my video playlists and my original videos on YouTube under Chris Alvarez. I cover sci-fi short films and games, fantasy fiction, horror short films and games, video and board game design, and more. You can get interesting news on fiction and fiction studies on my Twitter page, Chris Alvarez FCN. You can find cosplay and convention photos on my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi. You can sign up for my newsletter on new books on my websites, ChrisAlvarez.com or FullContactNerd.com. Thank you for listening and keep imagining the past, the present, 
in the future.